Last week with the new year, we began a new sermon series, and we are starting to look at uh, the patriarchs. Beginning in Genesis chapter 12, we see how all of, out of all of the people of the earth, God chose Abram to make a special promise, establish a special relationship with. And as we watch him, we're going to learn for ourselves what does it mean to be God's people in this world. We are now at Genesis still chapter 12, where we will be looking at verses 10 through 20 this morning. If you'd like to look that up in your pew Bibles, it's found on pages 10 and 11. But the entirety of the text is on the screen behind me where you also are invited to follow along. Again, from Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whenever we do baptisms, as you saw this morning, there are three questions that are always asked of the parents. And because we are so blessed to do many baptisms, I've had plenty of opportunity to reflect upon and think through those questions. And one of my favorites to continue to explore and develop is the second question that I asked parents. It is, second, do you believe that your child... Though sinful by nature, is received by Christ as a member of his covenant and therefore ought to be baptized. In that question, there's a couple of parts. The first part is this. To acknowledge, do you acknowledge that your child is born with a sinful nature? Meaning, as I often say, that no child will ever have to be taught how to do the wrong thing. And we have some fun conversations, and I saw some chuckling, of what it means to see that sinful nature come out in our young children. How quickly they learn to deceive, to be selfish, to do what they know 
or, or don't know, but naturally do, that is wrong. And in fact, the role of a parent is to teach them how to recognize those things as sin and to prevent from doing those things. But that's not the heart of this question. The heart of this question is that although we recognize that truth, that Mabel in particular will fall short of all of the promises that were made to her this morning, what God doesn't do is say, okay, well then let's wait. Let's wait until you prove yourself worthy. Until you get it out of your system, until you've developed enough of a track record to say, okay, now since you've demonstrated your worthiness, I will accept you into my family. The question is the exact opposite. That although we recognize Mabel will fall short, nevertheless, God in Christ has received her. And says already now, you are my child, knowing that she's not going to live well in light of that truth. What a joy. What an incredible thing to celebrate every time we come to that baptismal font. The promises are hers. Mabel has received them for the rest of her life. She will know she is a child of God, even though she won't live out that calling. We celebrated that same kind of a promise with Abram last week when we saw the promises that he, in God's grace, received and was given. And yes, there were sacrifices that he had to make in order to pursue those promises, but those sacrifices seem small when you know that there's a reward at the end. We, we do that all of the time as a child, jokingly, you know, I'll give you 20 bucks if you try this disgusting food. I'm like, well, a little bit of disgust in my mouth is worth the money. I'll take the risk. Or with employers, you know, I'll give you my labor. I'll work that extra time if you give me the money in return. We make those exchanges when we know the reward is there. Those sacrifices can be a lot harder to make when obstacles get in the way. When instead of receiving a reward, you just seem like you hit up against trials and struggles. And in many ways, that's what our text is about this morning. In a lot of ways, Abram could say, I made it at the end of last week's message. He had received the promises of God, he had responded, and then he had journeyed with his family and his possessions, going all the way through and exploring the land of Canaan, receiving again the promises that this would be the place for his children. At the end of the text, you could say he'd come a long way, and he's already starting to see the fruit of those promises. But then there's an obstacle. And as happened with Jesus right after he was baptized, was immediately led into the wilderness to be tempted. Very often in life, steps of faith are quickly met with challenges to that faith. And the obstacle appears right away in verse 10 of our text. We are told immediately that there was a famine in the land 
which is a clear threat to the promise that God had made. God had told Abram that he was going to become a great nation and that this land was going to be the place that was going to be where they are growing and, and sustained. But now the question is, was that a dud of a promise? Is this land going to be able to be worthy of keeping alive a great nation? And so when Abram sees this threat, what does he do? And how does he respond? Well, it appears that rather than trusting in God or looking to God for direction, Abram seems to fall back into that old tendency we talked about last week, to try to correct and fix things in his own strength and in his own wisdom. And so he decides to go with his family to Egypt where he can get food. And just before he arriving, he also decides that because of her beauty and therefore in fear of his life, he's going to convince Sarai to say that he's not her husband, but that is, was half true, that he was his brother, in, her brother instead. Now, very quickly, many people will ask. We saw last week, Abram was 75 at this point, which means that Sarai is at least 65 years old right here. And we in our culture say, a 65-year-old woman, how can she be attractive? But in that way, I... I <laughs> Yes, you can be attractive as a 65-year-old. But to the point where you would fear risking your life in light of that. And the answers that I saw to that that were best were, given the span of their life, if you stretch that out, Sarai would have been roughly middle age at this point. Maybe 30 to 35 equivalent. Or, again, in this culture back then, what it meant to be attractive may have been very different from what is often considered attractive in our culture for today. So I did at least want to address that, even though I tripped over that terribly. <laughs> Regardless of why, this decision becomes the source of great conflict in this story. Because, as he is expected, Sarah's appeal is recognized. And she is, therefore, taken into Pharaoh's harem. Now, in this text, we have to acknowledge that we are told what Abraham decided to do. But as much as we see those actions, we're never explicitly told if he should have done something different, nor are we given directly God's analysis of the decisions that he made, which can make it difficult to interpret. And we'd say, I say that because very often when we read through the Bible, we read through it as though it is a bunch of moral stories where there are certain good people that we elevate and say, see the decision that they made? That was a good decision. We should be like them. And then there's bad people that make bad decisions and we are told, well, don't be like that person. And while we do learn from people, it's where does Abram fit in this story? And in looking for an answer to that, in my studies, there were some that putting Abram in that category of a good guy tried very hard to defend his, what I would say, indefensible actions. 
They would say, one even went so far as to say, knowing that he had to live in order for God's promises to stay true, Abram made these decisions to protect himself so he could protect the promises of God. I thought that was going a little bit too far. Now, others go too far the other way. And they would say, as much as we call Abram a patriarch, he is, in this story, the king of the patriarchy. Very willing to sacrifice the honor and the chastity of his wife and to look at her as a piece of possession that he can bargain with and establish better relationships with the Egyptians. And therefore, he is to be demonized in this story and recognized as completely doing something totally wrong. And again, I think they can go too far with that as well. Because as several other commentaries warned, the truth is we don't understand all of the cultural dynamics of what was going on in this story. Of why it would be important to not be a husband, but rather be a sister. And we can guess at certain things, but we don't know the whole story. And I say all of that to this end. The point of this passage isn't about Abram. It's not about trying to figure out whether he is a, a good guy to be elevated or a bad guy to be ridiculed and diminished and a reckless sinner to be rejected. Regardless of that truth, in the decisions that he does make, we recognize that he increases the threat the promises of God. In fact, when we get to the end of verse 16, things are not going well at all. Just earlier in this chapter, God had promised Abram descendants. He had promised him a great name, blessings, and a land. And when we get to verse 16, yes, Abram has increased his possessions, but they are ill-gotten gains by the hands of the Egyptians. And instead of being in the land that God had promised, he's now in a foreign land. And while last week we recognized he had no children, now he doesn't even have a wife in his tent with him. And so, whereas last week we felt like things were moving toward the promises being fulfilled, we've, stepped, we've taken a huge step backwards where everything is at risk where everything is questionable and we don't know where any of these promises are going to go. But that's when everything changes. And when we get to verse 17 of our text, we hear those wonderful words, but the Lord. When it seems like things are not going well, the Lord shows up. And that's really incredible to recognize for several reasons. First of all, especially for the first readers of this text, when they see the Lord acting in Egypt, that would be shocking to them. 
Their deities, their idol gods were often seen as gods of a particular people that occupied a particular space and gods weren't able to exercise power and authority in foreign lands that are worshiping other gods. And yet here is this God that had led Abram out of Ur into Canaan and now in Egypt was still exercising his power and authority. This is a God who is beyond the limits of a people, group, or territory. But furthermore, we have to just marvel at the fact that God would act at all. Again, here we are, right after the Tower of Babel, where out of all of the different nations that it had created, God makes these wonderful promises to one. And now, as soon as that one sees any kind of an obstacle... We see this, who is in a special relationship with God, clearly, if nothing else, tell a lie about his family and gain out of the, the lie that he had just had financially. And in light of that, you could easily see God say, whoa, we just started this. No. No. If you're not going to relate to me in a proper way, if you're not going to live as my child, trusting in me in every step, then I'm going to leave you. And I'm going to go look for somebody else, one of those all other nations. And I'll establish a relationship with somebody who's more worthy, who will be faithful, who will trust me in a way that you clearly, Abram, are not. But again, that's not what our God does. The Lord in Egypt shows up and a plague is inflicted on the household of Pharaoh. And it's clear that, that Pharaoh gets the message behind that plague. He recognizes that this is because of Sarai. And even though we don't get God's explicit evaluation of Abram's choices, we do hear Pharaoh's when he says in verse 18 through 19, Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is, you, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her from my, for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And what just a little while ago looked like lost and hopeless events toward the promises where the threat to those promises was great. The Lord acts and we now get back on course. And that is why, as much as people often try to make this section about Abram, the story is really a story about God and his ongoing faithfulness to a people who will always fall short of being and living as his children. Rather than quickly walking away from people that will fail to live up to the honor of the title of being God's chosen people, God continues to be faithful and he rescues these sinners. And that would have been a real comfort to the original readers of this text. People who themselves had recently been led out of Egypt. They would have looked at the story of their ancestor Abram and they would have said, that's just like us. We had to go to Egypt because of a famine. We got intertwined with Pharaoh's household. We were oppressed and, and then finally through plagues we were sent away with gifts but being told to just leave. 
And now as we journey toward this promised land, what an incredible reminder it is that though we will fall short, God will keep leading us to that hope. And that comfort and that hope is there for us as well. Because we too can look at this text and say, that's exactly like us. Think about all of the times in your life when you looked ahead and you anticipated or were experiencing an obstacle. A new financial hardship, a health struggle you weren't anticipating, some relationship issues that caused a great deal of conflict. And then seeing that obstacle, immediately you too, we, have fallen back into that human pattern of instead of looking to God, asking for direction, and trusting in His guidance, we've made decisions in our own, on our own, and in our fear. Think about all of the times when you looked at others, and because you were worried about how they would respond to you, not that they would take your life, but even just look at you funny or treat you differently because of the choices that you make, you decided to do something totally wrong and sinful just because, out of fear, you didn't want others to look at you in a different way. Think about all of the times, though you have been baptized and received the promises that Mabel received and have come to the communion table celebrating those promises, you've left these worship services and you've gone and you've lived nothing like the child of God that he says that you are. But instead, you were a poor example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And then think that were it up to us in our own strength to live out that calling faithfully and perfectly all of the time, we would fall short. That we would never be saved. We would never go to that promised land of eternity because we can't live it out faithfully. And God should just walk away, wash his hands of us, and say, you know what? These are the consequences of the choices that you made. But the Lord. But the Lord continues to be faithful to his promises. That rather than abandoning us in our sin, he sent his one and only son to not only come and live for us and remind us of how to live as, Christ, as followers of the Lord, but he sacrificed everything he was and everything he could so that you, so that me, so that all of us could be forgiven, so that a relationship with the Lord could be reconciled, and in him taking those actions, he assures us that no matter how far you wander, no matter how far short you fall of being his children, he will be faithful. Now, let me be careful and abundantly clear right here. The point of this message is not to say, therefore, go ahead Go ahead and sin. Go ahead and do things in your own strength because in the end, God's going to clean it all up and fix it. There will be no problems. Doesn't matter what you do. As we soon will see, there are definitely consequences, bad ones, to the choices that Abram makes here. 
And those consequences will continue to compound for himself and his family as he continues to rely on his own strength. And that happens to us as well. Anytime we willfully choose to ignore God's commands, we make life harder. And in doing that, we risk our testimony and we risk our faith. And so... God's grace should never be taken for granted or neglected. Instead, the invitation is in recognizing that God is so gracious, that he is so faithful. It should inspire us to live lives more worthy, to sacrifice everything we can to ensure that when people look at us, we are seen as light, as salt in a world that needs examples of what it means to be God's people. But that brings me back to that second question. We are all sinful by nature. And we're not picking on Mabel here because we say this not just about her but it was said about me and it was said about all of us and it's proven to be 100% correct. All people are born with a sinful nature and therefore all of us will fall short of being examples and living as Christ calls us to live as the followers of the Lord. But today we celebrate that nevertheless, in Christ, God has received her and he has received us. And though we fall short, we serve a faithful God who always keeps his promises. And yes, there will be time when Mabel falls short. And she may stray mightily in her life, but God will always call her back and will always pursue her in love. What a great God we serve. What a joy to worship that God that though we are unworthy, he still says, nevertheless, I have received you into my family and I call you my own. In light of that celebration, let's bow our heads. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are an unworthy people. And we sit before you this morning as those that though we have promised over and over again, though we made New Year's resolutions to put certain sins behind us, we've fallen short. We are not worthy to be called your children. But thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your ongoing power and might. Thank you for never leaving us or abandoning us in our sin. But while we were still sinners, you came to this earth and you showed your love by dying on that cross in order to call us home and to do what we can't in our own strength. Lord, may our lives celebrate that truth in lives lived in faithful obedience. May we serve you in all that we do and in all that we are, trusting in your faithful guidance every step of the way until that great day when we are welcomed into that home that we did not deserve but was purchased by your blood. Lord, may we serve you and worship you for the gracious God that you are. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.